2: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations for the smartest person in the friend group. I'm trying that one out. What do you think of it? I'm pretty sure if you're listening, you're the smartest one in your friend group. So if you like that new tagline, Chris, it's smartpeoplepodcast.com, tell me what you think. But in all seriousness, I can probably count on one hand the amount of times I have said the following sentence. This episode can genuinely change your life. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. In fact, when I have conversations like this, one of the things that's hardest about introducing them is not overselling it, but I get so passionate about what is covered and so amazed by the insights that I try my best to impress upon you how important I think it is. And so this time to do that, I picked out a 10-second clip. Here it is.
1: People who, who die or who are close to dying come back and they say, or at least many of them say, look, we've been living in fear for a long time, and it turns out the fear was not justified.
2: Okay, so what might prompt somebody who was on the brink of death to say that? We're going to find out in this episode. This week, we are talking to Dr. Alexander Batiani. He is the director of the Research Institute for Theoretical Psychology and Personalist Studies at Pazmány Péter University in Budapest. He's a professor for existential psychotherapy at the Moscow Institute of Psychoanalysis. He's the director of the Viktor Frankl Institute in Vienna, author or editor of more than 15 books. He lectures around the world, and he is also the author of the new book which we are discussing called Threshold: Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and death. I'm going to let this conversation do the talking. Share it. Share it with the world. It needs these messages. Tell us what you think. Smartpeoplepodcast at com. And thanks for tuning in. Here it is, our conversation with Dr. Alexander Battiani about his brand new book, Threshold, Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death. Enjoy. Alex, I noticed that you're the director of the Viktor Frankl Institute and Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl's book, is something that I have long referenced. It has taught me a lot. I have used it in my career. So first, tell me a little bit about uh, what the Institute is and what your role is there and how you
1: came across that. Well, I mean, Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist, as you know, and he was world famous and... Uh, he was very active until his very last month. Actually, on, um, he was teaching until he was, I think, ninety-one. I listened to his last lectures, and there was this old Jewish gentleman, very much almost an incarnation of old Europe, um, and he he received letters from all around the world. I mean, Mansur Meaning has been translated into I don't know how many languages. Some of them. I didn't even know before I looked you know where this book comes the translation comes from and given that there was so much so many requests and so on the family and a few of his colleagues said let's you know we should get it off your shoulders and found something like an institute where you know letters can be answered lectures be organized and so on and this is what then became the Viktor Frankl Institute which was then after Frankl died Uh, directed by his uh, daughter and his son-in-law. And I'm actually the the very first non-family member who was asked, it's an enormous honor and pleasure, to be institute director. And what do we do? I mean, the interest in logotherapy in Frankl's school of psychotherapy and his thinking and his approach to what it means to be human, to become human or to remain human, also in the face of suffering and in a world which is very much in need of a message of hope, of meaning, of consolation. Um, this work goes on all around the world. I mean, there are about 140 or 150 institutes worldwide on, in almost every country. And they do offer training in logotherapy or they do actually help people, you know, in the slums or I mean, there's need everywhere, even in the very wealthy nations you have. And that's even more astonishing, a certain inner emptiness and loneliness and and people are suffering. And, and the Institute is there or our work is there actually uh, to be at least try to be a positive influence on the world, which is very, very much in need of a positive message. How does his book and his message and his life translate into
2: the therapy that you do at the Institute.
1: Mm. Well, let me first, Chris, add something which readers and maybe even you don't know. The very first edition of this book was published without a name on the cover. Oh, wow. Uh, Frankl wrote, when he when he returned from the camps, he wrote two books in the very first year, and he felt the urge to write them because he had the feeling of being, you know, being... Uh, next to his sister, the only surviving family member, all others were killed during the Holocaust, murdered during the Holocaust, uh, he felt that, uh, you know, I must prove worthy to be alive. Yeah, And so uh, he had this mission to, to publish these two books. One was on the psychotherapy. In English, the edition is called The Doctor and the Soul. And the other one he wrote... And the original German title was A psychologist Endures the Concentration Camp. Yeah. And later in his lectures, he told our students that he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to, to put himself in the center of this. He wanted to bear witness to what many, many millions had to go through. And then he wanted to add the perspective that even In the most dark situation, there is a light which is burning in us, yeah. And but not only is there a light, there's also an obligation, a responsibility to remain human and to share, even in the or especially in the most adverse circumstances, to live up to what man can, what what humans can be, yeah. And um, and I think the book. Is very well. I mean, it's, it's an excellent testimony, and we hear from so many people who are in very dire life situations. Uncomparable, but each suffering is uncomparable, yeah. And then they read this book and they see, well, it is possible. But once again, Frankl didn't want to have this, didn't want to turn this into an ego story. This is me suffering, and so on, yeah. He just wanted to be a witness. This happened. And this can happen, so this is possible. There's, you, man, you can't take dignity away from a human being. You can deny it, but you can't take it away. It's really our essence, yeah. And this is, the, I think, the message among many others he wanted to convey. The psychotherapy, as such, is um, is not only concerned. With, uh, with, it's much broader, so to speak, and does what it's nowadays. It's an evidence-based psychotherapy, meaning-oriented. But I think there's a very strong overlap between the the main message of man's search for meaning and what logotherapists or you know frankly therapists are trying to achieve, namely to to tell the person you are worthy, you are free not from conditions, but even if you have these conditions, you're still free to be someone, to do something and to live, I mean, to live meaningfully, to live with purpose, yeah, and so on, yeah. Well, and I can see how it translates so well into all the
2: work you do. It translates mm-hmm. into this book, which we're going to talk about. Right. And I know one of the things that you speak on and you're interested in is this idea of a living a meaningful life, finding a meaningful life. How does that
1: relate to the book, which is kind of about the end of life? Yeah, I mean, the subtitle of the book is It's a Border of, um, of Life and Death, and, and on purpose, because whatever we learn about death and dying has very strong repercussions on how we live, or maybe, you know, maybe they can even teach us there's a certain wisdom. I mean, from the field of near death studies, there's this idea, and it seems truly to happen, that some people experience a light at the end of life. And my hope, in a way, is that this light shines into our everyday life. Yeah. So if you if you talk to people and let's let's talk about the time before they're actually dying. Yeah. So if you if you take time and listen to someone who's let's let's say having a few weeks or even a few days to live, yeah, then you encounter a person who is no longer under social pressure because nobody expects anything from you? Yeah, finally you can be you. There's, you know, it's, it doesn't matter in the hospice how you're dressed up, or how you look, or how you just can be yourself. Yeah, and when people encounter themselves in such an honesty, they understand suddenly a lot about life. And I often wondered, even before I came to write this book, I often wondered. Why so late? I mean, maybe we can take some of these lessons and translate them into everyday life because sometimes people say, had I only known what I know now, yeah? But it's not that they learned more at the end of life. On the contrary, they unlearned a few things which they believed are really important, like impressing other people and so on, which is fine. I mean, we all, you know, like like to impress <laughs> friends and family and, and so on, and girlfriends, But but... I mean, when it comes to being human, it means having a beginning, having an end, and then we don't know, and that's fine. But at least we know that we have this lifespan and we have uh, a certain amount of freedom, responsibility, a thirst for life. Usually we are benevolent, but sometimes our benevolence is hidden because everyday life, everyday social life can be very harsh, very unfriendly. And then, of course, benevolence isn't the first thing in our priority list, but it could be. And this is basically what people are telling us at the end of life. They seem to understand that life in the end could be fairly easy because we all want the same. We want to be accepted and accepting. We want to you know, share our joy or share our suffering and, and do something, create something, experience something and so on. So this is... I think a strong overlap between between the work of Viktor Frankl and where we learn. I mean, if it's wisdom, it doesn't have a tag. There's no. I mean, if it's wisdom, it's wisdom. Full stop. It's it's neither a denomination or a philosophy. It just is good for us because it's, because it is true. You know? This episode is brought to you by
0: Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you.
2: You covered a lot there. I think you basically just gave us a a cliff notes of what I think I want to talk about for the rest of this interview, and which is great. And one of the things you mentioned is kind of at the end of life, people see themselves in their honesty. I think is the word used, which is so incredible to think about. I often struggle with utilizing the idea of death to live a better life because in those moments before death, or even when you have a terminal diagnosis, you now know so much certainty. You know how much time, you know what your responsibilities are for the rest of the time you have. You know a lot of this. Whereas for those of us living, we don't know. And so I find that it's hard because although I want to live life to the fullest, I might live to a hundred and I have to work hard and do things I don't want to and plan and be responsible. So how do we balance the idea of thinking about the finite nature of life, but also recognizing it is, it can be,
1: long. Yes, I see, I see your point. Um, I don't see a contradiction, because um, I think the most important thing is to tell listeners, and I also try to tell it to my students, that uh, accepting, acknowledging that we are mortal, that we are going to die, is not necessarily something very depressing. Yeah, it's oh, not that. Okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, sometimes when you read, let let's say existential philosophy, you think about people who are really, you know, have this grave look, and they think, you know, everything is in vain and so on. And it seems to be a bit different, yeah. Uh, but only, or maybe it's easier to see how beautiful it can be when we understand. I mean, the fact that we are mortal is a fact, and it's it's you know, that's how it is, yeah. The question is, what does it mean? And the question is, how does it affect my life? And there seems to be, I mean, at least over here in Europe and in a certain tradition, there has been a long psychological and philosophical and social, let's say, discourse on what is more important, to be or to have. Yeah? I don't know whether that affected the States as well. We do know that everything which we have can be lost. Yeah, But what we be or what we become remains true. So if I let's say to make it very simple, if I steal, let's say, a hundred dollars from someone, yeah, what do I have? A little money, and how long will I have it? Nowadays, not very long, yeah. So the having is lost. But what will I have become? A thief? And that will be true of me even after my death. It's you know, even if nobody remembers, but it will be true that I was the person who stole, yeah. So and 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 in this sense, if you If you look at this from this perspective, then death or mortality gives a certain uh, duration to things which having wouldn't have. I hope that's not too abstract, but I remember... No, no, Alex,
2: it's fantastic. (laughs) I wrote it down, to be or to have. To your point, it's one example of the lessons you probably learn towards the end of your life, which is, I spent so much time trying to have and
1: not enough time trying to be. Exactly. And then comes another point, and now I would like to go back to Viktor Frankl. I remember in one of the very last lectures, um, a friend of mine actually uh, asked a question, and he asked Frankl, what do you think about the concept of self-realization or self-actualization? And Frankl, now 91, paused for a moment and then he said a beautiful answer and I think that counts a lot yeah he said it's a great concept, but please do not realize everything which lies dormant in you. only realize that which is valuable and worthwhile to be realized and this he was an alleged uh, gentleman when he said this, but this we hear so often from those who are you know who don't have so much time they say i'm so grateful to myself that i realized this i'm a bit sorry for having not having realized that and so on so but the point is that it it depends on us to a certain extent what we are becoming so if being is more important than having then becoming is even more important because that means it's us who have a choice between being that or that or this person yeah, and that's be-
2: the idea, both Frankl's and those that you've you know, understood towards the end of life, it's this idea that although to be is the ultimate, really life is about becoming, and you get to choose that be. We have a lot of things within us, and some— are worthy of understanding, and some
1: perhaps we're glad we don't. Is that fair? Exactly. I mean, every day we are confronted with possibilities, so that which has not yet become, yeah, and then it depends on us. What do we do? I mean, there are many possibilities which better never become because it wouldn't be good for us or for the world or for others, and then we don't do it, yeah. But there are many, many possibilities which should become and when we realize them, when we when we when we take them from possible into real, so if, if we if we do them, yeah, then nobody can undo them. And nobody can undo the fact that they have been done. Yeah? So and if there wasn't any death, we would have time Infinite time to do and undo, and you know, there would be ways to counterbalance things and so on. So, to a certain degree, I think responsibility and death or you know, finiteness do relate in a very strong way. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, I have actually often thought about this, which is weird to say,
2: but I have gone even through the thought exercise, right? And I think, at least for the most part, you don't have any drive, you don't have any need to become, because there's always time left to become. And therefore, I think it would lead to complete
1: apathy, complete boredom. It's a weird thing to to think about. But there's some literature on it. I think, wasn't it Borges who wrote a short story about the immortals and they are so utterly unhappy because nothing makes sense and there's no meaning. Um, So, yeah, this, I mean, now we're really far off, but I I would just like to say, put a little footnote, yeah? Um, I... In my book, I report a little bit on near-death experiences, yeah, and I have at least two or three in my database who told me I'm homesick for heaven. Actually, I, I really look forward to, yeah, and and then they say, but I I know that it wouldn't be I wouldn't be entitled to to take a shortcut, so to speak, yeah, because I've got something to do here, and it wouldn't be nice after. If I didn't do what I have to do here. But um, so there are a few cases which or cases, persons, yeah, who say that um, they're looking forward to it. <laughs> I remember
2: seeing an interview with somebody who had a near death experience. And they said that when they came back to life and when they started to live again, they had to
1: learn how to want to be here yes i mean it's also yeah we live in a very secular age no, and and of course if you if you reduce or if you tempted to reduce what you see and and say this is everything there is yeah which is of course it's a very bold assertion then um, then of course everything which is unknown is dark and if it's dark we can project all our fears which perhaps belong more to this world because it's a very harsh world um, or social world also to 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 the unknown and to the you know transcendent or you know think, transcendent in the sense of being beyond our beyond that which we currently know and understand yeah and therefore the witnesses I think are important I mean the witnesses who have come near death and and who are the only witnesses one could ever ask yeah and and rather than what would perhaps materialism or a simple you know, reduction of man, view of personhood, would predict when they come back and when they are resuscitated, they don't talk about nothingness, which, you know, swallowed them up. But many of them have very, or, most of them have very ordered, very complex, very insightful experiences, which is remarkable in itself. And, and importantly, no matter what the explanation is, it is a genuine experience. And they come back with wisdom which without this experience they in all likelihood wouldn't have with them and be able to share. And that alone is a good reason to listen. And then there are a number of phenomena which are difficult to understand if if you say this is merely an illusion or a trick of the brain or whatever, confabulation. And so and I think it's good to know, but let's separate the things. Yeah, The fact that what we said so far is, life can be enormously meaningful, but it also depends on us. Yeah, It depends on us, um, and it depends not on what we receive in life, but what on what we send out. And this is also related actually to both fields. Yeah, So many people at the end of life understand, and they say, and they tell us, and they tell me as a younger person, please learn this from me. Yeah? What what I send out belongs to me. And what I receive belongs to the person who sent it out. And now this sounds a bit paradoxical, but if somebody is unfriendly to you, then you might suffer from this, but it's their unfriendliness. It belongs to them. Yeah. And if I'm friendly to someone, if I'm benevolent, if I sit a few hours long at the bed of, of a patient, long before I could go home to my family, then I give this... And the person relishes my presence, hopefully, but still, it belongs to me because without me, it wouldn't have become, you know, become a fact, so to speak. Yeah, and this is very important to know. And then comes the second step, so to speak, and that is that uh, people who uh, who die or who are close to dying come back, and they say, or at least many of them say, "Look." We've been living in fear for a long time, and it turns out the fear was not justified. And w- whatever we longed for, and I mean, look at this world today. Yeah, we all long for healing. This world screams for healing, actually. Yeah, um, collectively and and the person alone. Yeah, in in poor countries, but also in the in, in the industrial nations. I mean, look at the empty faces people are longing for something which would be there. And what I try to show in the book and therefore once again it's called threshold and it means there are two sides, you know, where you are and, and where you could be. And um, this would and is available to us. it's not that we have to die in order to to experience some of the peace we are looking or healing or benevolence we are looking for. Yeah? It is possible to bring it over, so to speak, to take, you know, to live it in everyday life. Yeah. We won't succeed all the time and we're not heroes. We are just normal human beings, but at least we can try. And the trying alone is enormously valuable. You said uh, one of the things those on the threshold might mention when they
2: come back is we've been living in fear and it is not justified. Could you go into that a little deeper? And I realize this is based on your observations with those at this moment, but tell us why they come to that conclusion or or what they say about
1: it. Yes, so I mean, uh, yeah, we, we we opened a lot of doors and now let's see which, yeah, <laughs> which no, room we can exactly. enter. But that's fine, I mean, life is exactly like that, yeah. So um, now uh, in my book, I. Do two things. I I talk to people who were unexpectedly lucid, which we might come back to later. Uh, and then there's another whole, you know, field, a huge field, and many more people, millions by now, who have been resuscitated and entered a space or a state and leave that open for because we don't know. Yeah, um, entered something which tells them. In no uncertain terms, that all of us are sheltered, that um, we are growing even by our, and it's not that it is fine to 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 make mistakes because. It's a mistake, yeah, and yet that it is—it's—it's it's okay to grow. That we are here to grow, yeah. But even more importantly, that we are somehow sheltered in—and they—and now I will use words which I borrow from those who told me, yeah, mm, sheltered in a light or in a warmth or in a certain, yeah. I mean, the word love is overused, but they say it's love pure pure love actually yeah so and how do they know and that's really interesting especially for someone with a science background they don't learn it in words they learn it in understanding in other words they come back and if you ask if you ask them how do you know they say well I do and that's it yeah I do know it's not that they can come back with a book or you know a revelation of words but they come back with a revelation of knowing, yeah. and I should say not only knowing but also glowing. Because when they talk like that, and you—it's one thing to read this; it's another to look in somebody's—you know—to look at somebody who's maybe in the hospital bed, really, really tired, and and maybe dizzy and so on, and you know the machines are beeping, and still when they talk about it, it's you look at pure life and and joy and. Uh, and an urge to to tell to talk about something for which they say there are no words because this is not of this world and all the vocabulary we learned is for this world yeah so it doesn't <laughs> there are no words for this yeah it goes even further i mean a few of them at least three or four told me about colors which are which we don't know here yeah And ever since, yeah, and ever since I tried to imagine what these colors might might look like. But so, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, well, and
2: my first thought was, hey, isn't there data or research or at least uh, theories that this is caused by chemical releases and blah, blah, blah? But then I realized, does that even matter? As I talk to you, I'm taking such a logical uh, life experience approach to a potentially not just illogical experience, but an unknowable. And that's why I like the way you say it, right? They didn't go read a book on feeling love. They just say, because I know. And how often do we refute the feeling and say we need to back it up instead with knowledge?
1: Yeah, good point. But but look, for example, the topic I find enormously interesting is the neuroscience of music, um, of the experience of music, Yeah. Mm -hmm. one thing is for sure everyone knows how it is like to bath in the symphony orchestra when you know when the when you when you get lost in the sound drowned in the sound yeah and even if you knew what's happening in your brain what I mean what would it matter this I mean and it, it is it is unimportant so to speak yeah um of course, the question what's happening in our brains during a near-death experience is, a lit, a lit, uh, is less innocent, so to speak, yeah? because of course there are also, I mean, people who are having or having had a near-death experience, they also say, I don't fear death anymore. And if you ask them, if you probe a little further, many of them will not say because it was so nice, but they will also say, because I know that death is not the end of it. And then yeah, then we talk business. Because now it's it is an interesting question, because then of course it's very, very important. And it's an you know, it's it's the old question of humanity. Yeah. Um, is this all there is or is there more to it? Yeah. And and then it becomes, and of course, I mean that's an ongoing debate. Yeah. And there are points to be made on both sides, and I think, and I even perhaps hope, it's going to remain like that. Yeah, because I often wonder what would happen if we knew, and that wouldn't be very easy. But at least what I can say is, for those who had this experience, and they say they do know that it continues. It doesn't seem to hurt their life conduct. On the contrary, they they fare very well because maybe they have a little less anxiety, and so on. Yeah.
2: There's one thing you mentioned. And when you were talking about the what you do is up to you, if you do something, you own it, but if somebody does something to you, they own it. And I, I think that's a message that doesn't get perpetrated, doesn't get said enough because you also added, if somebody does something to you, you might suffer, but they still own it. I think that's a really critical distinction because oftentimes I believe we will, when we experience suffering at the hands of others, we take it so personally and we put so much meaning behind it. But the way you put it is more in the, well, that was them. You're choosing to internalize it this way. What are you going to do with it?
1: Much more empowering. Yes. Um, Yes. On the other hand, I mean, thank you for saying, this might be, especially for psychological suffering, that's true. I mean, but unfortunately and fortunately at the same time, we are bestowed with an enormous amount of freedom. And that means that we can do enormous harm to other people or to nature or to ourselves. And some of this harm is not mental, but physical, speaking about the concentration and so on I don't I mean we, we do enough to each other that we don't even and uh, and I mean this in a very uh, I don't I didn't say this in order to or not so much as a coping mechanism but rather as a mechanism or as an in order to further an understanding of our responsibility yeah so what I what I would I mean Socrates when he died and he died in the most elegant way I quote him in my book like saying farewell and then he says something along the lines of so if the soul is immortal which he seemed to have thought all along but it was a very strong impression when he died on him yeah then the only thing which counts is how what did I become because this I will take with me and again speaking about our near-death experiences, they have something which I call compassionate memory, which otherwise doesn't exist anywhere in the textbooks. I mean, if not during the near-death experience. And that is, they not only remember almost, at least they say so, each and every single word and deed they did to other people or to to nature, but they also seem to understand the impact of their words and deeds. So what they get is not only the fact that I did this and that, but also its effects, yeah, its impact. And so when I'm saying, or when I when I when I said uh, what we send out belongs to us, and what the other sends sends to us belongs to them, true. I mean, it it is fine for coping, but it also means a lot more. It means if we. Lament how cold this world and other people and you know whatever it means. Well, yeah, instead of complaining or only complaining, why not start sending out the warmth, love, and light you miss in this world? Yeah, I mean, why why wait for others? And it's I know this sounds a bit a bit very lofty and so on, but it is possible. And people tell us that after they came back and then they were. You know, able to to enter normal everyday life again, that they try and it works, yeah. And once again, right? Once again, there's a caveat. Also, we will always fail, and that's very fine. That that's to a certain extent what makes humans such a lovely species, yeah. I mean, we are everything but perfect, and that's totally fine. And if we accept this from ourselves, but also in other people, accept our vulnerability, our error proneness. Also, then it's much easier to live, no? Because we know we try our best, but, you know, it doesn't always work. But
2: why does it matter? Why
1: do these people on their deathbed, or when they're lucid
2: at the end, or when they come back, why do they care about any of this, knowing the end is near? And I can't but help wonder if my question got answered with Socrates' quote. Do you think that they care about this because they realize this is not the end? We're taking this with us. Don't view this as everything that's happened here in this life is now f- meaningless because it is over. But instead, perhaps it's the beginning. It's, I don't want to say a scorecard, but you know, there's memory there. It, do you think that's why all of our quote-unquote actions and responses
1: matter now? Uh, do I think that they matter because— what I do know <laughs> is that many of those who return tell us that they do know. And once again they know it in a way like you and I know that we are alive right now. I mean how put that into words? You can you know so it's it's something which is stronger than words, yeah. And I wouldn't say all of them because that would be, you know, it's a huge group now. There are I don't know how many Millions of people, eight to eighteen percent of those who have been resuscitated, do remember in their death experience. Um, a couple of hundred thousands remember a bit later, and so on. so we don't know the. But it's it, it's millions, yeah. And of course, depending on where they come from, I mean, ideologically, or maybe they have a certain faith, and so on. Some of them change their faith. Uh, I think not everyone will will say the same thing when it comes to interpreting it. yeah. But many, many, if not the vast majority will tell us that where well, they just know it's not the end. Let's imagine this. Okay. Let's imagine
2: you have life and you go on thinking life's all that matters. So if I steal from you, if I do some really bad stuff, it doesn't matter because eventually it ends and it's an abyss. Let's just say that's your perspective. And then you come to the end and you learn, oh, wait, there's more beyond this. It also must mean that it's not just that there's more beyond this, but that your time here mattered. So again, that's why I like Socrates' quote, because if the soul is immortal, which insinuates who I have become thus far continues, then the time we spent and the person we become and the things we have accrued, then they actually matter because there's more to it. That's what I'm getting at. And I'm just curious, do you think,
1: based on your opinions and research and all that, there is truth to that? Uh, thank you for saying, no, yeah, not only is there truth to I'm really grateful that you mentioned this, yeah, because sometimes uh, when you talk about the afterlife or whatever, yeah, and, and then you think, why go through all of this? If there's such beauty be- you know, lurking beyond, yeah, and I think, and then I mean, and then it's easy, and I think easy and very wrong and false to say, okay, so let's do a shortcut. No, I mean, why hang around here? Yeah, it's 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 a place of pain and and not only of joy but also of pain, and why? And and now again, uh, I can only urge listeners to believe because I'm I'm only a witness, people told me I didn't have a near-death experience, yeah. But people told me that um, that this life matters enormously. And it in other words, what we do count. it, It it makes a difference. And we don't over of course, how could we? We are a tiny part of a huge universe. I mean, physically speaking, yeah. How could we know, you know, the whole meaning of the history of mankind, of earth, of nature and so on, yeah? But each of us is a chapter in this unwritten Chronicles of Humanity. And and if you take one chapter away prematurely, it would be missing. It would be empty pages where something should be written, yeah. And therefore, I utterly, I totally agree, and it's very important. And even more importantly, people told me more than once. Because of course, the implicit question is, okay, so why, if you're homesick for heaven, why don't you go home? And they say, because I'm not supposed to, yeah, because this is too important. And another one elderly gentleman who was who was resuscitated, he said. Um, something even more beautiful and mind blowing is it because I'm in it right now. It's not that it's not that life begins in the afterlife. <laughs> in other words, oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, I mean, if if we if we are, let's say, if I don't know it, if we are, no, no, sure, if we are eternal, then this eternity is happening at this very moment, not tomorrow. Yeah. Whoa. So yeah, that's trippy. And the <laughs> reason
2: I say that, I mean, I feel like many people. Have had this experience, I'll be sitting around a fire or I'll be looking out over an ocean or I'll be sitting staring at my newborn and I will have this feeling of this is perfection. You couldn't imagine a beauty like that unless you were given it. That is where oftentimes the following moment will be for me, a fear of death. Because thinking about this no longer being. And I think just what this discussion is opening up the opportunity for is what if this is one iteration, one chapter, one element of eternity, but there are different types of beauty with the same or perhaps even more impact just in a different way beyond. And you carry yourself, who you are, through all of these. It's it's such a beautiful and absolutely magnificent way of viewing experience, of viewing our current reality. And I'll tell you, there is a chance that this is what the idea of heaven and hell is. What if the idea is more, when you die, you still know everything you did, every person you impacted, every pain, pleasure you caused, all of these things. And if you did good, that will feel like a heaven. And if you didn't, if you wasted it, if you did all those things, that will feel
1: like a hell. That's that seems like plausible. That's a beautiful, yeah, totally. But you know what? In the, I think it wasn't it uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux. She had this idea of a purgatory of love. In other words, nobody's punishing you. But here you stand in the presence of truth or beauty or what could be, you know, the good, and then you compare this to what you did. Right. And that and that offers a lot of pain. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So, hmm. yeah, yeah. One of the
2: things I, I don't think we have touched on enough is we mentioned it, but your book is really focused on a different end of life phenomenon, which is terminal lucidity, which is not coming back from death. It's not a near-death experience. Can you explain to us what terminal lucidity is and specifically
1: what interested you in this idea? Terminal lucidity, or TL for short, is a phenomenon which is, I think, related to the near-death experience. And um, and uh, Kübler-Ross, who was, I think, the pioneer of near-death studies, along with Raymond Moody, sometimes mentioned that the following happens. Patients who have suffered, been suffering from dementia, who forgot you know, that they have family members, didn't recognize them anymore. So they were severely demented, yeah on the very last day, or let's say shortly before death, two to three days or hours, maybe sometimes minutes, suddenly re-emerge as the full person they have always been before they have been hit by a disease, by brain disorder. Yeah? And they, they are suddenly able to have coherent verbal interaction. They talk and they very often seem to know which is unusual, that they're going to die, it's not going to last for long. And then they say farewell, they share memories, relish some, you know, make peace, whatever, and then they die. And the phenomenon has been reported since time immemorial, and ever since doctors became chroniclers of the disease and, and also death process of the patients for thousands of years. But only recently, let's say in 2009, I think the time had come to look at this from a scientific viewpoint, and there were three papers published in, in, you know, scientific journals on what now is called terminal lucidity. Why did you
2: decide that this is an area you wanted to focus on?
1: Yeah, for a reason which we briefly touched upon, and then I said it's not... What's happening basically is you have somebody, who, someone who has a severely disordered brain, and a, a brain with, let's say, struck by advanced Alzheimer's, doesn't heal, and doesn't heal in such a short time. That would at least that would be a bit like unboiling a boiled egg. I mean, we talk about real severe tissue damage, yeah, or change. And I've always been, I mean, almost always been interested in the question of human personhood and. And uh, and of course, this is also touches upon what's happening really during a near-death experience, but also during TL. Namely, are we more than you know? Are we more than biological function? Yeah, and and uh, a hardcore materialist or a, a biological you know a, a reductionism would tell us our mind does what our brain does, and it's easy to see in everyday life that there's a ring of truth to it because. If we get very drunk, or you know, if we smoke something, then we are high, yeah, or we are we are drunk, yeah. So our it's possible to physiologically affect our our minds, yeah, Um, and that speaks a bit in favor of a dependency of mind on brain. And yet, you have these very unusual cases towards the end of life, when materialism and its counter model which would be let's say dualism in other words dual dual meets two and the, the idea is that we consist of two essences namely a body and a soul or a mind or a conscious mind however you call that yeah um, they make very different predictions materialism will tell us that when the body dies there's decay also of the mind and then finally there's that's the end of it yeah and dualism or other such models, which are not reductionist, will tell us, well, at death, it's it's the best test case to see whether mind and body go one way or two different ways. No? I mean, very intuitively, yeah? I, I'm making this simpler than it is, but it, it's, that's basically the, the thinking behind that, yeah? So, and then... I should say I won't go into it in detail, but but I, I I witnessed terminal lucidity in my own grandmother who had a couple of strokes, and but it sat there in my mind as a beautiful story, and I never read I I always relished it, and it was very, very moving, and very beautiful, but I, I somehow it, I didn't catch the the implications, and then in two thousand and nine these three. Papers were published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease and uh, two other uh, near-death studies. Um, and I thought, well, I mean, I know this phenomenon, but even if I didn't know it, I mean, one has, this is enormous, yeah, on so many layers, because think of it, Alzheimer's, dementia's are irreversible. This is what the textbooks are teaching us, yeah. And there's no therapy. I mean, you can slow it down, but, I mean it's not very impressive what we have at the moment yeah so and if there's a possibility that these people come back yeah and it's somehow related to something which is happening at or near death maybe it's possible to therapeutically use utilize this trigger whatever it is without actually endangering the life of the patient yeah so that would that would bring hope to millions who are suffering or who know that they have genetic predisposition towards it and so on yeah absolutely Well, and given,
2: you know, you're probably the person I will, the only person I will talk to in my entire life who knows this much about it. I have to ask, and I realize we are asking you to kind of boil the ocean. And, and that's why we talk about your book and we will link to it because if any of this conversation interests you buy the book, it's much more in depth. What have you learned most by studying and observing
1: TL? I'm very often asked by colleagues because I tend to be very cautious in what I what I say, because I think there's a huge responsibility, especially when you talk about such topics and people expect to know something or learn something, as if I knew so much. I learned a lot. And I must say that um, towards the end of the book, I talk about our light being protected by a larger light and so on. And that's I, I think I went really far um, in saying what I learned. I mean... What I seem, what I think, what I believe, I know is that there's a dignity in us, which perhaps we can't, we we can't even dream of how big we are. I mean, and and big. I mean, um, the significance of each of us, yeah. And even when outside observers only see, you know, dementia, death, decay, and so on, there's so much more happening in us. We are sheltered. And, and this I really learned we are sheltered Yeah. now combine this with what near-death experiences which I also look at in this book there are about six hundred uh, seven no I don't know six hundred somewhat um, NDEs whose interview I, I analyzed and so on and TL and the NDE point very much in the same direction and the direction would be something like a re habilitation of of the soul, yeah. Oh. I mean I think all my colleagues are going to be at my throat at this. But it's true. What can I what can I've I've sometimes been asked, yes, but you at university and don't you think that <laughs> you are and and I can only answer perhaps, but how could I I mean how could I not say What I think my book makes a case for, yeah. And uh, it reminds me of William James, who, you know, founder of psychology, so to speak, in the American in Harvard, author of the large textbook called James and the small one called The Jimmy (laughs) in the short version. And and he also said I mean, he encountered, he looked and he encountered too much. And then he said, I mean Basically, what can I do? I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist to only repeat what we already learned because that's not the point. Uh, I have to report, and if I, and I'm and I'd really welcome, and I'm sure there's going to be criticism arguments. Put it, but but what I, the only thing I can say is that look at the data I'm presenting, and look at the stories I'm I'm uh, I'm retelling. Yeah. And many of them are, are from the witnesses themselves, yeah. Because I think I, I, I owed it to them to give them the space, yeah. And these are very moving stories, but next to all that is moving, there lurks behind an insight on who we are, and it is much, much, much more than we are aware of in everyday life. But it is there, and um, and it doesn't take long, and it doesn't need much, to reconnect to what we are yeah so in this book i'm not trying to convince anyone about everything anything but just to to relish sit down and 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 feel your personhood and and i think that at least what i didn't do sometimes after one of them told me to do that yeah near-death experience to remember who we are i can sense your hesitation due to the
2: gravity of this topic but i also think and i want to say for the purposes of this show for the purposes of what we're discussing i appreciate your opinion and perspective with the understanding like you said at a university maybe you can't prove it because the way i view this entire discussion is this caveat of we are talking about something that is potentially unknowable and at least at the moment is unknowable and so to use it more as a discussion about possibilities, some philosophy on how to live your life. If this is potential and based on the best information, which you are presenting us with, there is a likelihood that this is the truth. So rather than think about this later or never, at least it forces us to think about it now. The other thing, you said it so eloquently and matter of factly almost that I have to reiterate, you said Terminal lucidity could be rehabilitation of the soul, and I just have to make sure everybody hears that because what it insinuates is the possibility that if Socrates is right and the soul is immortal, okay, and it's what we carry with us, then terminal lucidity is the moment that we recover from the physical limitations and problems that we encounter throughout life, we recover so that we can go into the next phase, a whole person. That is like, you want to have your mind blown that come on, come on, Alex. That's, that is absolutely insane that you're just carrying that around in your brain. You get that,
1: right? (laughs) Yes, I get that. Um, And there's, I mean, in the book, I even tried to, you know, there are two findings and you can you can edit that out if you but there are two findings which we need to reconcile, yeah? And that is very strong dependence of our minds and our brains during everyday life. And that's why psycho you know, why psychiatric medication works, because it affects the mind via the brain. And then at the same time, you have what seems to be utter independence towards the end of life. Let's say the near-death experience happens during a time when physiologically the body should be busy with everything but generating complex insightful experiences because you are you need to survive yeah it's not that you need to have a nice i mean if you're eaten by a lion it's not the time or if you're threatened to be eaten by a lion evolutionarily speaking it's not the ideal time to be spaced out in utter beauty but you should run you should fight no and um, or be unconscious so it's not so painful. So evolutionarily speaking, it doesn't make overly much sense. Neither does turn lucidity, by the way, because why only at the end of life? If the body is able to heal Alzheimer's, then do it the many years before and not on the very last day, and you're going to die anyway. So uh, so we have to reconcile these two findings. Yeah, And my colleague Bruce Grayson, who is the author of this wonderful book, um, After... In which, in which he recounts his 30-something years' work as a near-death researcher and psychiatrist, Bruce ca- came up with this wonderful ad- model, no, observation, not idea, it's, it's an observation, that uh, many things in many laws in nature which we believe are set in stone and they can't be changed, yeah, Change suddenly and very strongly as soon as we go to the outer limits. Let's say Newton, like normal, you know, classical physics governs our everyday life. This is why the fridge works and the light bulb goes on. And, and when I throw something on the ground, it falls down. Everything is normal. Yeah. But if you become very, very, very small quantum physics, none of this is true anymore. And if you become very, very, very fast, relativity none of what is our everyday life and we believe will never change suddenly not changes just a bit but utterly and totally yeah so as soon as we go to the outer limits to the extremes nature changes the rule of you know, the rules yeah and maybe it's the same with us and death yeah so in everyday life our minds are very dependent on our on our brain at the beginning we don't know much about death, we know by now a little. Yeah. Um, the near-death experience takes place when materialism wouldn't predict it to take place. You know, there's little oxygen after cardiac arrest and so on. And and in TL it takes place. Once again, at a at a biologically very, very unlikely time. Yeah. And so and I think that's a way of being a scientifically informed dualist. In other words, and dualist is the cautious word for believing that we are a soul, yeah, and have a body and not the other way around, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, a couple things. If you love this conversation, I when you said that about Bruce, I just wanted to let listeners know, do you know we interviewed Bruce uh, a while ago? Yeah, I didn't even put the link together. So those interested, soon as you finish with this one, episode 372 with Dr. Bruce Grayson about life after death. And I might want to have him back on, because this is, I mean a fascinating subject and I appreciate everything you've said. I also want to float this idea and then I promise we'll wrap up, which is what about this thought that I had that uh, terminal lucidity could be an evolutionary feature that allows people to pass on the wisdom they've learned, even if they are technically physically incapable of doing that.
1: But, um, um, evolution doesn't work by someone scribing it down, but by having an evolutionary advantage which, which you can pass on. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, You know, there should be a feature which is... Well, two things. Very frankly, I think it's not overly likely because if they had more time, they would have been able to pass on more wisdom. Yeah, So if nature would be so generous to say, okay, here you have... You know, <laughs> then then why only a few, let's say, hours or so? There's been so much which needs to be said in these few hours. And the next point is, TL is beautiful because it is as weird as human beings usually are. Yeah, Some of them give wisdom. Some of them say, you know, but many others do say, I love you, or I forgive you, or they do remember things which even the witnesses have to look later on in the, in the in the family album to remember, oh yeah, this is true. And given that these are Alzheimer's patients, that's very remarkable in its own right. But others are just relishing. I have at least five or six or maybe even more in my day. I mean, one of them was beautiful. And um, so... She was an elderly lady. She had to come back and they were engaging the family. You know, there was lots of tears and lots of laughter and the nurse came every hour and she wondered, have they gone mad because they're crying and they're laughing. And finally, the daughter asked the mother, who was supposedly having dementia, but now was back, said, is there anything I can do for you now? And, she, and the mother said, yes, please go down, the, the, go to the hospital store and buy me some chocolate. And then she ate this chocolate. And the daughter says, I never ever in my life saw someone celebrating, relishing, bathing so much in the joy of eating chocolate as my mother did when she was, you know, when she was dying. Yeah. So evolutionary speaking, I don't know what what's, you know, <laughs> whether that's <laughs> but experientially and existentially speaking, it's an important lesson. I mean, how much could we enjoy? I mean, how much, how many things we just, you know, take for granted. But when you when you know you're you're here for only a few hours, then of course the piece of chocolate suddenly is, you know, much more than just a chocolate, but it is chocolate. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. No, there's <laughs> another one, right? Maybe it's just mm-hmm. um the world's way that, you know, the universe's way of saying, hey, take a couple more minutes and bask <laughs> in this 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 <laughs> chapter of your life. And you yeah. know, whatever it is, and I'm gonna choose to believe it's what you mentioned earlier. It's kind of the Rehabilitation of the soul. I'm just going to choose that for now, and I'm gonna kick it around for a while. But whatever it is, everything we've discussed speaks to the significance of our life. It's also, I don't find it to be ironic or um, happenstance that I just interviewed recently, a uh, astrophysicist who talked about how we need to focus on our time on this planet and the impact and all of that. and he said, our significance lies in our ability to question our significance i take what he said in that interview and what you said in this one and it just reinvigorates as you mentioned life can be hard there are things that can happen we get stuck in our head we think about all of the fears as you mentioned or anxieties or what we need to have and there is an alternative perspective that was presented now if we choose to accept it. That's up to us, but that's what this show is about presenting alternatives and letting you think through them. So Alex, I'm, I'm truly grateful for, for this conversation, for the work you do. The book, as we mentioned, is called threshold terminal lucidity and the border of life and death. Uh, highly recommend it just came out as of, you know, this airing, it'll be just about a month old. Um, so, Alex, before we let you go, anywhere else you would like to point people, or where they can continue learning about
1: this idea or your work? Well, first of all, thanks for having a really, really nice. It was I was utterly enjoying this. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and well, I mean, currently I'm working on another book, and I, I, I'm interested in more interested in lo- learning what people have to say when they are they have been gone because they had this let's say dementia and so on yeah then they come back and then and what i found so astonishing is that i mean these were people who didn't even know that they're in the hospital because they forgot everything or in a hospice or nursing home yeah and now they're back and not only do they recognize and know and so on and so forth they also know that they're going to die so they not only have some idea no not very not only have that the memories back they also seem to have a very clear idea of what is ahead of them, yeah. which is not true for most of us. We don't know when we're going to die. And so there is a certain, I, w- I wouldn't even call this wisdom, uh, but a certain knowledge which I think needs to be looked at. Yeah, And I, I wrote many books, scientific books, and in these books one is in the driver's seat because you, you know, you you have the facts and then you do inferences and, and you say questions and so on. In this book, I was much more like, I mean, much of much in this book I received from, from these people, yeah, from the, the trust of the relatives or the witnesses. And it's a very nice experience, very humbling, but, you know, humbling and at the same time a very wonderful experience. And, and in this sense, I, I think my next book is going to be or my next work, and I, I will publish some of it also online, um, on on the stories people tell and on the experiences they have. Yeah, If we have a, a minute more, I'd just like to, because it's so imp- also important for those who are listening and maybe there are relatives in their own environment who are suffering from, you know were close to death and you are there yeah Uh, and that's the story of Sergei Rachmaninoff the composer yeah so he had to leave Russia because of Stalin and so on and he moved to Beverly Hills and when he moved into this house he almost clairvoyantly said this is the play this is my last home on earth this is where I'm going to die yeah and people wondered why would he say this and okay he was a composer and an artist then he went on the concert tour through through the States and in the middle of it, he fell gravely ill, and in what turned out to be lung cancer, yeah. and end-stage lung cancer. So he had to be brought back to Beverly Hills, and there he was in his death on his deathbed, and in a very silent room, very peaceful, everything. People standing around him, and his heartbeat is getting irregular, and the breathing. So all the usual signs of you know death is coming soon, and suddenly he opens his eyes and he looks positively elated and he says can you hear the music can you hear this beautiful music and nobody heard anything yeah? and people looked at each other and no and he said yes but can't you hear the beautiful melody and then nobody, everybody says, insisted no there's silence in this room yeah? and then he said ok so then the music is only in my head and he lay down and died wow <laughs> It's a beautiful story, but it also has a lesson. I mean, why didn't nobody ask him what kind of music are you yeah. hearing? I mean, yeah. why waste the time and the energy to insist that there is no music rather than? I mean, here's the greatest, one of the greatest Russian composers of the century. And even if not, here's a person who is dying and he's telling us something. And instead of insisting in my reality, there's no music, why not open up? Yeah, and and I hope that this lesson maybe it's because it's a story and stories stick much better than data. Um, remember that I try to remember this. Yeah, so and and it need not be a dying person. It, anyone. Yeah, can listen to can hear a certain type of something. Yeah, and then insist rather than insisting no, it's only in your whatever. Be there. Yeah, and and that's also a gift for everyone. I mean, including ourselves. Ourselves. Yeah.
2: I love Mm -hmm. that. Be there, right?
1: Be Mm -hmm. curious. I mean, it's what, it's what we're doing here. Be helpful, loving, kind. I mean, we all, we all long for this. Yeah. So why are we so miserly? I mean, yeah.
2: (laughs) I love it. Alex, I I, I have a feeling there's a part two in our future and you better when, you know, look, when you write that new book, you better reach (laughs) out because you're definitely coming back for that one. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the show,
1: Alex. Thank you for having me. Thank you all the best.
2: A thank you to this week's guest,
0: Dr. Alexander Battiani. The episode was hosted as always by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Dr. Battiani's book, Threshold, Terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death can be found wherever books are sold. We wanna hear from you. If you wanna reach out to us, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter, at Smart People Pod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.